Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. This podcast series will feature selected sessions from the 20th International Workshop on Non-Hodgkin Lymphoma, which was held in Miami, Florida, and brought together leading experts who discuss the latest in the field. In this podcast, you will hear from Stephen Ansel, John Kurovilla, Marek Chunyini, and Yuchai Wang, who discuss the evolving treatment landscape in mantle cell lymphoma, highlighting the impact of novel agents in this disease. Hi, my name is Steve Ansel from Mayo Clinic, and uh, we're grateful to be together talking uh, about mantle cell lymphoma here at IWNHL. I'm going to let my colleagues, all of whom are really experts in the field, share who they are. So, John, you want to get us started? Thanks, Steve. Uh, I'm John Curvilla. I work at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center in Toronto, Canada. Great to be here. Great. Marek? Thank you. So, I'm Marek Tunyani. I'm from Prague, Czech Republic. You join? Yeah, my name is Yuchai Wan. I'm a lymphoma doctor at Mayo Clinic, just with uh, Steve. So anyway, really a fun session on mantle cell lymphoma, and we'd like to just talk a little bit about your takeaways from uh, that time. So the main focus was about biology and talking about high-risk patients, but then really talking about the impact of new therapies and how it's kind of changing things. So John, I'm going to start you off because you got the unenviable task of talking about what's the future of autologous stem cell transplant. So your thoughts based on kind of involving data as to how that field is moving. Yeah, it's an interesting time for us because we've seen a major impact with the development of stem cell transplants, the incorporation of rituximab, maintenance, intensive chemotherapy, and excellent 10-year results now. Uh, so we have a really good platform, but at the same time, we have a ton of novel therapies uh, coming to the forefront. And now we finally have randomized trial data showing that the incorporation of BTK inhibitors, particularly abrutinib in terms of data that's read out to date, now showing impressive results in frontline, both in transplant eligible po populations as well as transplant ineligible populations. Right. And so, Merrick, you really kind of highlighted that data talking about the triangle trial. So your take on has that changed the standard of practice uh, or not? Yeah, I think that uh, there are two two things. One, I think that the role of the stem cell transplant is going to disappear. So we are not yet to say to everybody, okay, not go to the transplant, but I think that we are on that way. The other issue is that the BTK inhibitor ibrutinib is not reimbursed or approved for this indication. So we are really in the tricky situation. We could rely on the data which are not mature yet, so we have to wait. But on the other hand, we do not have really approved medication for the first line right. for these settings. So, so this is something we have to discuss. But I think that uh, for the low risk, maybe for instance, I think that we are already discussing uh, with the patients just to skip the stem cell transplant, the toxicity, etc. For the high risk, it's a more difficult issue because the high-risk TP53 uh, um, mutated patients, you know, they have a poor outcome. So there is a no plateau for the stem cell transplant as well. And if you see the Brexusol data, they are the highest 
high risk population, which is failing from the long term perspective as well. Right. And you try, we had this conversation mm -hmm. about do we treat younger patients and mm -hmm. older patients differently? And in the old days, we did based on our transplant plans. Yeah. But do you think that's changing? And in your practice, what are you doing? Yeah, with the triangle data showing the transplant may be omitted when you incorporate lower agent up frontline, yeah, that perspective may be changing because historically, you, first question is this patient going to go through transplant or not? So with, with the triangle data again, so that, you know, algorithm may be changing. So now if you, you think no agent is going to move to the front line to be combined with chemotherapy, yeah, it's just a different question. Which chemo do you give for young versus old patients? So in a sense, still relevant, but not in, in the transplant sense. But in the future, if the uh, no no agent com combination come to the front line, then eventually probably, just like in CIL, the age will no longer be relevant. Right. Go ahead, Mary. Yeah, uh, we have published a couple of years ago the data. We treated the patients with alternate elderly patients, median age 73 old, with alternative regimen RCHOP, RRC. And currently we are treating RCHOP, our dogs. So I think that uh, the data are quite promising. So I think that if the patient is able to really go through this uh, therapy, I think that those components, RRC plus cisplatinum or oxaliplatinum, rituximab, rituximab maintenance, so you really can get the very interesting data. So I agree with you. I think things are changing a lot in frontline. John, you made a point in the meeting, which I thought was very valuable, is about maintenance therapy. So often rituximab maintenance has been our standard, now potentially adding a BTK inhibitor. So is it important to add the BTK inhibitor in the maintenance or in the frontline or both? Or what do you think? Uh, it's hard to know at this point, given how the data have developed. Um, what we can say from a study like the Triangle trial is that uh, when you look at the magnitude of all of the effect, it clearly speaks to the benefit of the drug in both settings. Uh, when you look at the data from Sean now, um, it was pointed out in the meeting as well that the, the separation of those curves appears to happen uh, with the use of maintenance as opposed to during the induction phase when it's being given in combination with chemotherapy. Part of that may also be that we don't have good enough tools to really appreciate the depth of remission, a PET scan may not be adequate, an MRD may not be assessed routinely in clinical practice. So I'll say the jury's out there, but we certainly know, even looking at rituximab, the magnitude of the benefit, certainly the most was with maintenance. And so if you're limited in terms of how you may access the drug, building it in wherever you can, if in, and if it's only in the maintenance setting, that's better than not at all. Yeah. So Merrick, just want to ask you a question. You know, you mentioned a number of different regimens that you've been using, and we've mentioned about the BTK inhibitors and how they are really bringing promise. Do you think it matters whether you add the BTK inhibitor to RCHOP or the BTK inhibitor BR? So in other words, does the backbone that you're adding the novel treatments to make a difference? Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, for us, we do not use very often the BR only for really patients who are uh, compromised. So we, for the patients up to 70, uh, 75 and maybe some more, we use combination with the RCHOP. Um, I think that uh, I do not have the answer to the question if it does matter, but I think it's, it's, it's very interesting that from the triangle study, the patients 
didn't receive ibrutinib in each cycle. They got the six cycles of the chemotherapy, but they really got the ibrutinib only with ARCHOP. It means three cycles out of six. And the response rate, the complete remission rate was really improved. So from 36 to 45% in relative ways, it's, it's almost 30% increase in a complete remission rate. So I think that I would be very cautious to say that it's only the maintenance part. I think that it's, it's, it's really plays a role in the, as a part of the induction. I think you make some good points. So maybe moving on a little bit and you try to bring you into, where do you think in, in all of this changing environment are we going with the cellular therapies? And specifically you and others highlighted a little bit of data about the difference to CAR T-cell products. So your mm -hmm. thoughts on where do they fit? Are they gonna make it all the way to frontline? Or, um, and is there a preference on how you manage and which one you use? Yeah, great question, Steve. Uh, so, so far, Brexosal was approved by the FDA, but they did not specify how many lines of therapy you should have received in the RAP setting. So you can use as early as in the second line. But in practice, most of us, I think, still use Brexosal in the third line setting, uh, most frequently after a BDK failure in the second line. Uh, so definitely there are data emerging when you use Brexosal in the second line. Uh, outcome might be a little bit better, but limited by small numbers, certainly need to be confirmed. So in high risk patients, you can certainly try to get insurance approval to use Brexosal in the second line. Because in the NCCN guideline, interestingly, they said that you should use Brexosal in the third line. So that made it a little difficult, although FDA label was, you know, you can use as early as the second line. But yeah, for, for high-risk patients, you, you should certainly try. Well, will they eventually land in the front line? There are studies going on. So there are single-arm studies in Houston, MD Anderson. They're doing a so-called Window 3 study. They are leading with a, a calibrutinib and then add a, a CAR T-cell very early for high-risk patients only so far. So it will be very interesting to see what the data show. And then our European colleagues are doing randomized studies comparing BTK chemo versus BTK followed by uh, CAR T cell therapy, again, for high-risk patients. Very exciting trials, we await the data. The other CAR T cell product that's coming is the lasso cell. We saw exciting data at uh, Nugano this year, and this uh, product uh, uses a 4-1-BB uh, setting. It seems to have a better toxicity profile, high response rate as well. Uh, we just need to see, uh, when used in standard of care practice, whether the durational response uh, is similar to breast cell. Uh, because in the pivotal trials seem to be a little different compared to Zuma 2 data or the different trial population. Right. So John, I want to, you know, it seems to me CAR T cells are in the ascendancy and autologous transplant may be descending a little bit. Do you think the one's going to replace the other? Uh, I would think so, Steve, eventually. My sense with auto, one of the questions that comes up, much like we think about this and the, the similarities to the myeloma world as novel therapy has come there, and was heavily dependent on transplant, will it become a, a relapse uh, setting uh, treatment, autologous transplant? And I would argue there, if we already have something else that's quite effective, I think it'll be less likely to be used. And given all the other novel agents that are available in combination and new ones coming down the pipe, uh, you know, I'm, I personally, I think I'm okay with saying that a therapy from 25 years ago has right. probably had its day and we'll move on. So, Marika, I want to ask you, so do you think we're going to start curing 
Mantle cell lymphoma, you know, we've always said these are to give us durable responses. You presented some very nice data, maybe that there's an autologous transplanted subset of people who may have a very long-term outcome. Now that we're bringing cellular therapies and novel treatments, America, we're going to fix everybody? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a very good question because the patients are usually ask us if I could be cured. I think that uh, definitely for low risk patients, low and some intermediate risk, we really see very long term survival and we almost see the plateau for those patients. Uh, but I think that we still have the challenge to with the high risk patients because they are going to relapse and, and at least in our hand there is uh, there is no plateau and I think that uh, for the mantle cell lymphoma although we have some subsequent treatments available already so to treat the patients who are failing the BTK inhibitors by CAR T cell it's not very easy because sometimes they are progressing very quickly and you do not have so much time to do something so I, I, I think that we should afford to give to balance the toxicity and efficacy, but to give the best what we can in the first line, because then we can proceed to the cure. I think I, I really do not believe very much to be cured in the second or the third line. Right. So, Yuchai, maybe you get the last word here. So, mm -hmm. thinking about the novel things that are in the pipeline, as Marek mentioned, what are you excited about and what do you think is really going to contribute to the curative potential in this disease? Yeah, so there are different classes of drugs that are in development showing promising data. I think a few classes to highlight. One is a bispecific antibody, like the glofidomab CD2033 bispecific antibody showed very high response rate, seems to be durable in trials. They're now going to randomized trials. I'm sure this agent, just like CAR-T, will probably move to the front, front line in the future. So, you know, if it's have better toxicity profile than CAR-T can be used in the community setting, maybe this holds the promise for the future frontline with the bicep with anybody, whether with or without other novel agent or even chemotherapy. Right. Well, just to say thank you very much to my colleagues for their comments on the session. It was a great session and thank you very much to you, the audience, for listening to this discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.